Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, June 14th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. Trump pleads not guilty to mishandling classified documents. The UK's COVID inquiry begins. A report finds global nuclear weapons stockpiles are rising rapidly. Illinois passes a law to prevent book restrictions. New York City mandates the nation's first minimum wage for food delivery workers. The UN voices support for a global AI watchdog. A British mother is jailed over her late-term abortion. Twitter's new CEO details her vision for the company. The U.S.'s first climate action case goes to trial. And a study finds that the U.K.'s breast cancer mortality rate is down 66%. In our first story, Trump pleads not guilty to classified files charges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Fox News, Business Insider, CNN, Politico, and The Independent. The legal team for former U.S. President Donald Trump on Tuesday entered a not guilty plea on 37 counts related to illegally retaining classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago residence and his alleged refusal to hand them over. This comes as the 2024 Republican frontrunner made his first appearance at the federal courthouse in Miami, Florida, after being indicted last week on the 37 felony counts by special counsel Jack Smith. The first former U.S. president ever to be charged by federal prosecutors, Trump entered the custody of the U.S. Marshals Service and was arrested on Tuesday ahead of his historic court appearance. The hearing lasted some 45 minutes with Magistrate Judge Jonathan Goodman ruling that Trump couldn't communicate with his aide and co-defendant, Walt Nada, about the case. They were released with no financial or special conditions. The case will now enter a legal grind of pretrial proceedings, in which attorneys for Trump and prosecutors will attempt to strike agreements on evidence to be put before a jury and schedule a trial. This was the second time in three months that Trump stood before a judge as a defendant in a criminal case after appearing in a Manhattan courtroom in April to face 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. He is scheduled to return to Manhattan criminal court on March 25th, days after the start of voting in primary states. So now you know what happened, and now let's hear what people are saying about it. The anti-Trump narrative on this story comes from the Daily Beast. We may be finally witnessing Donald Trump being held accountable for his actions. While Trump's continual excuses sound like raving hysterics, the former president will soon realize that the rule of law also applies to him. It's extremely clear that Trump took classified documents and refused to return them, and opportunities for escape are becoming ever more scarce. Here's the pro-Trump narrative from the Washington Examiner. The continued targeting of Trump over this is ridiculous, especially because there's another special counsel currently investigating Biden's possession of classified documents from when he was vice president. In fact, every president since Reagan has been found to possess classified documents, yet none of these other former officials are being attacked and investigated like Trump. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This time, they've forecasted that there's a 28% chance that any U.S. court will rule that Donald J. Trump is disqualified from holding the presidency before January 20th, 2025. So, Melissa, you're a U.S. Marshal. Are you happy to be assigned to the Trump beat, apprehending the former president and bring him to court? Or would you rather be assigned somewhere else? 
What what are my other options? Well, that's the question. I mean, it's the devil you know, or, you know, who knows what it could be. I mean, it could be, there, you know, a serial killer escaped in the sewer system and you got to traipse through in a, a Shawshank-esque tunnel of uh Oh, man, foulness. that sounds exciting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you'd rather do that? <laughs> the UK's COVID inquiry begins. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Fox News, Sky News, The Guardian, and BBC News. Headed by former appeal court judge Lady Heather Hallett, the UK's inquiry into its handling of the COVID pandemic began Tuesday. The four topics open to hearing so far are resilience and preparedness, core UK decision-making and political governance, the impact of the pandemic on healthcare, and vaccines and therapeutics. Though the probe is expected to last three years, Hallett said she would release findings after each section ends, with the first section due to look at whether government planning adequately considered the pandemic's risk. Coordination with Wales and Northern Ireland will also be investigated, with Robin Allen of the Local Government Association and Welsh Local Government Association claiming that the central government did not fully understand the way local government in England worked and what it could contribute. While Hallett says the inquiry is only to learn lessons and that nobody will be found guilty or innocent, Counsel for the group COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice UK, Pete Weatherby, has accused authorities of complacent pandemic planning that was geared toward a flu-style outbreak. Up to 70 witnesses are expected to testify in the first round of hearings, starting with Professor Jimmy Whitworth and Dr. Charlotte Hammer, experts in infectious diseases, epidemiology, and public health. Former Prime Ministers David Cameron and Boris Johnson, along with current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, will also appear. The inquiry was ordered by Johnson, who saw over 175,000 deaths by the end of his tenure in July last year. As the second round of hearings won't begin until later this year, the government is challenging a request for access to Johnson's WhatsApp messages while he was prime minister, a case set to end this month. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. And we'll start this round of narrative spins with an establishment critical narrative from The Telegraph. It seems this inquiry has been created to play out just like the government's response to COVID. Have a bunch of so-called experts give their advice on what should or shouldn't have happened until the public loses interest and accepts the status quo. Not only is the government planning for this to last years and cost over £114 million, pounds, or $126 million, it has already required negative COVID tests to attend the hearings, a national policy that has been defunct for a year. Those in charge don't seem to care about science, good governance, or justice. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from Metro. While families of those who died during the pandemic understandably feel their voices are falling on deaf ears, Heather Hallett's goal is to conduct an incredibly thorough investigation into any of the government's potential failures and obtain as many answers and as much justice for them as possible. This inquiry covers a lot of ground, so unfortunately... Everyone must wait patiently so she has the time to get to the bottom of each and every botched pandemic policy. A report says that nuclear weapons stockpiles are rising rapidly. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, France 24, Nikkei Asia, and The Times of Israel. According to a report released by the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute on Monday, the world's nine nuclear-armed states continued modernizing their existing arsenals and deploying the latest nuclear-capable weapon systems throughout 2022. 
The bulk of the increase was reportedly in China, where the stockpile of nuclear warheads grew from 350 to 410 between January 2022 and 2023. The report predicts that the world's third biggest nuclear power could match the U.S. and Russia's number of intercontinental ballistic missiles by 2030. However, China's 410 warheads remain a distant third in total estimated nuclear stockpiles behind Russia's 4,489 and Washington's 3,708. The six other atomic states, France, the U.K., Pakistan, India, Israel and North Korea contain 969 cumulative nuclear warheads. The world's nuclear powers reportedly spent $82.9 billion on their arsenals in 2022, with the U.S. representing most of the expenditure. China and Russia spent the next most, at $11.7 billion and $9.6 billion, respectively. The report warns that China's rapidly growing nuclear arsenal is becoming increasingly difficult to square and contrasts the country's declared position of having only the minimum nuclear forces needed to maintain its national security. While the total number of nuclear warheads was down from 12,710 to 12,512 globally, military stockpiles for potential use increased by 86, and the number of deployed warheads rose to 3,844, up from 3,700 a year earlier. Thanks for those terrifying facts, Melissa. We have an anti-China narrative on this story from the Star Tribune. China's growing nuclear arsenal is a scary development and a massive threat to global security. Additionally, Russia's vast atomic stockpile and invasion of Ukraine show the fragility of the global situation. The world cannot withstand further nuclear proliferation, and the U.S. must remain alert to deter continued weapons expansion. And here's a pro-China narrative from Semaphore. China must continue its nuclear arms development, as the report clearly shows the country only possesses a fraction of the U.S. and Russia's nuclear capabilities. China has the right to develop a robust stockpile to keep its people and territory safe. And as it has strictly followed a no-first-use nuclear policy, the biggest destroyer of world peace must stop making groundless speculations. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 10% chance that any country that had nuclear weapons on July 1st, 2017 will give them up before the year 2035. Melissa, while you were reading that story, I looked up through a few different sources that it would take about 100 nuclear weapons to essentially wipe out life on Earth. Okay. Are you familiar with Easter Island and those like crazy head statues that they have? Oh, Sure. And I, from the, at least the, the legend is, and I think this is somewhat true, is that that society like died out because they spent all their time building those statues and they like tore up their food supply and they didn't, you know, didn't maintain their, they didn't do anything, but they, they got it in their heads that we mm. need to make as many of these giant heads as we can. And that's the only thing we're going to focus on. Ah. And then they d- died out. They didn't have any food. They didn't have any water. They didn't have any anything. Okay. They got a this, little too focused on their art project. I feel right. It feel and they did a great job. A plus. Yeah. But this almost like wouldn't you want your enemy to have way, way too many of this thing that doesn't matter? It does after a certain number. When you put it like that, it does seem like we're we're all a little misinformed here. Like there there's a point, you know, you can have X amount of nukes and then beyond that, uh, you know, it's not useful, right? Right. Maybe we should buy some penicillin or something instead. Like what are we doing? Yeah. Illinois passes laws to prevent book restrictions. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by WGN, ABC News, ABC7 Chicago, Reuters, and the Associated Press. In response to alleged book bans in Republican states, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a first-of-its-kind law to withhold federal funding from any of the state's public libraries that restrict or ban material due to partisan or doctrinal objection. The law will go into effect on January 1, 2024, and will require public libraries to adhere to the American Library Association's Library Bill of Rights in order to receive state funding. Illinois Secretary of State and State Librarian Alexei Giannolius was a driving force behind House Bill 2789, which takes aim at school districts and libraries that removed books containing sexually explicit content. The legislation comes amid a wider push across the U.S. as several states have reportedly introduced legislation to prohibit certain books in children's education. The ALA claims that attempts to censor books across the nation doubled from 2021 to 2022, reaching a 20-year high. Votes on the bill split along party lines, with Republicans opposing the new legislation. Illinois House Minority Leader Tony McCombie, Republican, maintained that his caucus opposes book bans, but believes in granting autonomy to local districts and libraries. Those are the facts, and here are the spins. We'll start with a Democratic narrative from WTTW News. Pritzker and the state of Illinois have taken the bold step to officially prohibit the suppression of ideas and targeting of marginalized groups. This comes as far-right Republicans have increasingly denied the rights and existence of the LGBTQ community and dehumanized its youth. While Republicans look to move the nation's children backwards, Democrats are protecting free speech and will continue to push forward toward a more inclusive and diverse environment. The Republican narrative comes from PJ Media. Despite claims to the contrary, Illinois' new bill against so-called book bans isn't a defense of free speech. Rather, it's another attack by the radical left on parents with differing opinions, who are seeking to protect their children from exposure to sexually explicit content and indoctrination from false narratives of America's history. Maintaining age-appropriate requirements in libraries and schools is not the same as suppressing ideas. And here's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 5% chance that the ACLU will argue that hate speech shouldn't be protected by the First Amendment by 2024. Is a microfiche still a thing in the library? So is that microfilm? Is that what you're saying? The, yeah, uh, like you, yeah. yeah. Like I, I think what they do is if anyone asks for the microfilm, they're just apprehended immediately. They just, <laughs> just, we, we, you're up to no good, sir. It's over. You're trying to cover your tracks. We, yeah, that's what I think it's you. for. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. New York City mandates a minimum wage for food delivery workers. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, AOL, CNN, CBS, Yahoo Finance, and the New York Post. Starting on July 12th, app-based delivery workers in New York City will have to be paid at least $17.96 an hour, not including tips, making the city the first to mandate a minimum wage for delivery workers in the country. The new minimum is almost a threefold increase of the current $7.09 average rate. New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who announced the move on Sunday, said that the minimum wage would affect all app-based restaurant delivery workers who work for companies such as Grubhub, Uber Eats, and DoorDash. 
In addition to the increase in July, it was also announced that the minimum wage will again be increased to $19.96 an hour in April 2025, and that pay will be adjusted annually for inflation. The city clarified that apps will be free to decide how their workers' wages are determined as long as their minimum pay is reached, with the mayor's office saying apps have the option to pay delivery workers per trip, per hour worked, or develop their own formulas. The apps affected by the pay increases criticized the change, with a Grubhub spokesperson saying that, while we believe New York City had good intentions, they're concerned the changes will have serious adverse consequences for delivery workers in New York City. An earlier proposal by the City Department of Consumer and Worker Protection, or the DCWP, called for an even more substantial pay increase, with the highest figure cited being an increase to $33.27 per hour. All right. Thanks for those appetizing facts, Melissa. We have a left narrative spin from The Verge. This pay increase is a win for workers as the price of living in New York City continues to rise and the gig economy continues to grow. Delivery workers have a tough job and they deserve to be compensated fairly for their work. Though Grubhub, Uber Eats and DoorDash agitated against the raise, effective organizations managed to help push the new minimum wage forward. The right narrative comes from Fox 5 New York. Though policies like this might seem like a good thing for workers, in reality, they actually hurt the economy, pushing the costs onto consumers who will consequently use their services less. Instead of working with delivery apps to find an effective solution, the city has acted unilaterally without any dialogue to prevent economic cascade effects. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus states there's a 50% chance that the U.S. federal minimum wage will be raised by July of 2026. For a minute, things like Uber and Grubhub, they seem like a really good deal. And it turns out from what I've been reading, these companies were kind of subsidizing things to make it cheap. You know, it was like, wow, I can get my all my food delivered for, for $5 or I can mm. get a cab ride in a, in a in a Lincoln Town car across Seattle for for $11. Like that's pretty good. Uh yeah. and now these companies as they've matured, they actually have to start making money. So all that right. kind of subsidizing the slothful millennial lifestyle has kind of gone <laughs> away. And well now put. you kind of have to pay for it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I think New York City is an anomaly, right? Because I I went on to Redfin today and it said, you know, compare the cost of living in other cities. And it was like, uh, and New York City it was 127% more yeah. expensive. Than, I mean, by far over yeah. San Francisco, Los Angeles. I mean, just yeah. to the moon. So I, I feel like this is a different sample. Than yeah. the rest of the country. And then again, I also read that these Grubhub companies are kind of shafting the restaurants too. Like they get it mm. on both sides. You know, they they take a large proportion of the money that the restaurant would have normally gotten. You, you hear uh, restaurants around where I live often, they're like, you know, call us directly and we'll deliver instead of doing the Grubhub thing. You yeah, know? I've heard the same thing here. Yeah. And so I, and I will try to, especially with the little, with the little local mom yeah. and pop shops. The UN's Secretary General voices his support for a global AI watchdog. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fortune, Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and Reuters. On Monday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres stated that he was favorable to the idea that a global watchdog similar to the International Atomic Energy Agency should be founded to monitor artificial intelligence development, a proposal put forward by AI industry leaders. 
The remarks came while Guterres was speaking at the launch of a new disinformation policy at the UN, noting the potential risks AI poses to democracy and human rights. Noting that AI concerns are loudest from the developers who designed it, Guterres also announced the formation of an advisory board on AI to offer recommendations on AI alignment with human rights, the rule of law, and the common good. This echoes sentiments from OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, who earlier in June stated that an international regulatory body was needed to mitigate the existential risk AI poses. An agency such as the IAEA could only be created by member states, not unilaterally by the UN. Fearful of the potential abuses by despotic regimes and social media companies that value engagement before any other consideration, Guterres hopes the forthcoming UN Code of Conduct for Information Integrity on Digital Platforms will establish basic principles for others to follow. Along with transparency from companies on their social media algorithms and government protections for dissent, the Code of Conduct will require safe, secure, responsible, and ethical uses of AI. Elsewhere, the EU is finalizing its landmark legislation on AI, and the UK has planned an AI safety summit for this autumn. Those were the facts, and we'll begin with Narrative A from Foreign Policy. The IAEA is not the model AI luminaries should follow if they are serious about the risks of artificial intelligence. Multilateral cooperation is a slow process and would not be able to respond effectively to technology moving at such a breakneck speed. Indeed, nuclear armament increased dramatically in the first decade of the IAEA's existence. The onus for AI safety is on the developers themselves, who cannot shrug off this burden onto others. AI developers must work with each other and with governments to protect humanity from AI risks. Narrative B comes from CNN. While international organizations are far from perfect, they are our best chance to get ahead of the worst consequences of unchecked AI development. With such fierce global competition in the digital world, a patchwork, country-by-country model simply would not suffice. The risks of AI are comparable to nuclear war and infectious disease and could shake our world to its core. Countries around the world are treating this issue with the gravity it deserves as they get the ball rolling on international guidelines. And the metaculous nerds are at it again, saying this time there's a 50% chance that OpenAI will announce GPT-5 by January 25th, 2025. A UK mother is jailed over her late-term abortion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, The Guardian, Independent, CNN, The Telegraph, and Fox News. On Monday, a 44-year-old mother of three was sentenced to 28 months in prison for medically inducing an abortion approximately 32 to 34 weeks into her pregnancy. The woman reportedly received abortion pills under the UK government's Pills by Post program introduced during the pandemic to allow individuals to have at-home abortions up to 10 weeks of pregnancy following a remote consultation. Prosecutors allege the woman misled the British Pregnancy Advisory Service consultants so as to access the pills by stating she was below the legal cutoff when she was approximately 28 weeks pregnant. It has been reported that the woman entered labor five days after taking the abortion pills and gave birth while on an emergency call to healthcare professionals. The child was declared dead at the hospital, followed by a postmortem that revealed the accurate stage of the pregnancy. The woman has claimed she was too embarrassed to see a doctor after becoming pregnant a fourth time 
and could not learn how far along she was in her pregnancy during the COVID lockdown. The unidentified mother in March pleaded guilty to obtaining the abortion pill in violation of the 1861 Offenses Against the Person Act, though she pleaded not guilty to child destruction. Thanks, Melissa. We have some heavy narratives for this heavy story. We have a left narrative spin from The Guardian. This unnecessarily harsh sentence is a damning indictment of archaic abortion laws in England, which are based on criminal sanctions instead of health care considerations. Moreover, the judgment attacks women's rights and risks deterring women from lawfully seeking safer and legal recourse within the 24-week limit. The country must overhaul its reproductive justice laws instead of criminalizing women for having an abortion. And the right narrative is from the National Review. Abortion laws in the UK balance a woman's right to access safe and legal abortions with the protection of unborn children. The legal framework reinforces the state's commitment to preserving the sanctity of all life. Since British women are not deprived of their bodily autonomy, it's unfair to argue the laws are discriminatory, especially if the assertion is based on a just ruling against a woman who lied so as to illegally access abortion. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the United States before the year 2030. Twitter's new CEO wants the platform to become the most accurate news source. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Business Insider, The Verge, Fox News, CNN, and The New York Times. On Monday, new Twitter CEO Linda Yaccarino, who took over from owner Elon Musk last week, announced she wants the social media site to become the most accurate real-time information source worldwide. In her first memo to employees, which she also posted on Twitter, Yaccarino laid out her vision for Twitter 2.0, saying she aims for the social media site to reshape the global town square of communication. She also hopes the site will advance civilization by giving people the freedom to engage in an unfiltered exchange of information and open dialogue on the microblogging platform. Yaccarino will mainly focus on Twitter's business operations, according to a statement Musk posted on the platform last month. Yaccarino, formerly chairman of Global Advertising and Partnerships at NBC Universal, joined Twitter as its new CEO on June 6th. This announcement comes after the New York Times reported last week that Twitter's U.S. advertising revenue dropped 59% to $88 million in the weeks between April 1st and the first week of May compared to a year earlier. And we'll begin this round of narratives with narrative A from the drum. Musk knows he must make Twitter profitable again, and choosing Yaccarino as CEO is one of his smartest moves yet. Yaccarino's ascension has been lauded by advertisers who will flock back to Twitter if she succeeds in winning back users and business trust in the platform. And narrative B comes from Common Dreams. It's hypocritical for Yaccarino to pledge to turn Twitter into the world's most accurate news source, while Musk has opened the platform to conspiracy theorists, right-wing extremists, and thousands of accounts that were previously banned. Add Musk's erosion of long-standing content moderation used to fight against disinformation, and Yaccarino is clearly being set up to fail. And the nerds are at it again, this time saying there is a 46% chance that Twitter's net income will be higher in 2023 than in 2022. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The first climate action case goes to trial in the U.S. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Politico, and Reuters. On Monday, the trial for the case of Held versus State of Montana began. The constitutional case spearheaded by American youth is the first to reach trial in the U.S. with claims that Montana is violating the rights of children to a healthy environment. In 2020, 16 residents of the state between the ages of 5 and 22 became plaintiffs in the case when they accused state officials of developing and implementing fossil fuel-laden policies that would damage the environment. Over the course of Montana's statehood, there is no record of any permit for a fossil fuel project being rejected. Montana remains a large contributor, providing roughly 30 percent of the oil production in the U.S. Representation for the state planned to refute the accusations by saying that warming is a global problem that cannot be linked to Montana's state policies. The resolution that the young plaintiffs seek cannot be provided by the court system, but must instead be enacted through global government policy. The plaintiffs and their legal representation hope that if they are successful with their case, states will be forced to consider impacts on the climate and environment when passing fossil fuel-related policies. A win would also force state legislatures to apply that lens to policies already in implementation. Okay, we have a right narrative spin from Forbes. This is a show trial that is based on laws that do not actually exist and is a waste of taxpayer resources. This is also a concerning flex of judicial power pushing the limits too far of what courts should be able to do. This goes against the newly revised Montana Environmental Policy Act. The left narrative comes from The Guardian. These children's lives and future livelihoods are being negatively impacted by the climate crisis. Montana previously promised these children the right to a healthy environment and has violated that promise. This case has every right to go to trial, and these young plaintiffs deserve the opportunity to be heard during their day in court. And another nerd narrative from the forecasting community at Metaculus. They predict there's a 50% chance that the total damage incurred by climate change during the 21st century will be at least 8.84% of world GDP. And our final story, the breast cancer mortality rate is down 66%. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, Daily Mail, The Guardian, Independent, and the University of Oxford. According to a study funded by Cancer Research UK that examined around 500,000 women diagnosed with breast cancer in the UK between 1993 and 2015, women with early-stage breast cancer are 66% less likely to die from the disease compared to 20 years ago. University of Oxford scientists found 14% of breast cancer patients between 1993 and 1999 died within five years with the figure falling to 5% for those diagnosed between 2010 and 2015, according to new data published in the British Medical Journal on Tuesday. The study primarily examined cases where the cancer hadn't spread past the breast and analyzed the patients five years following their diagnoses, determining that some women had death rates as low as 0.2% based on the size and other characteristics of the cancer. The authors say they expect most women diagnosed with early invasive breast cancer to be long-term cancer survivors, attributing the improvement in survival rates to scientific breakthroughs, new treatments, and improved screenings. Oxford estimates that the current death rate from early-stage breast cancer for 63% of women is likely to be less than 3%. While there are other factors that greatly increase the risk of death, 
researchers believe the study can provide an accurate guide on how to treat different kinds of breast cancer. Thank you, Scott. And we'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from Cancer Research UK. Women across the UK and the world should be very pleased with the new findings on breast cancer survival and how the medical community is making great strides to ensure the long-term well-being of patients. The evidence is undeniable and an absolute step in the right direction toward helping women survive this deadly disease. The UK has been very committed to detecting breast cancer early and developing the best treatments possible, and it's clearly paying off. And the establishment critical narrative comes from The Guardian. While there may be improvements in the detection and treatment of breast cancer, there are still many barriers that prevent thousands of women from receiving the necessary care. Unfortunately, socioeconomic status creates a massive gap in patients' ability to get timely care, and some are forced to wait months before receiving treatment, which can mean the difference between life and death. Improvements should be celebrated, but the UK isn't even close to a victory over breast cancer. And the nerds have the final word, with the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 50% chance that the mean five-year relative survival rate of all cancers for both sexes in the United States will exceed 75% by April 2029. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, June 14th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.